Hello, and welcome to episode 33 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. I am Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and with me this week is a special guest host, Peter Wetz. Hi there, Peter. Hi, Jeff. Great to have you back, Peter. Listeners, you might remember him from episode 22, which we did back in April. Coincidentally, also a Davis Cup week. So uh, apparently my thoughts turn to Peter when we are in in the Davis Cup state of mind. Um, for those of you who aren't regular listeners, I hope you'll check out the podcast at podca- podcast.tennisabstract.com. And at tennisabstract.com, you'll also find some posts on the blog by Peter. He's written a number of them over the years, I guess maybe over this year and last year. Yeah. So check that out. Um, part of the reason I wanted to have Peter on this week was because Austria was, well, where he's from, as we'll find out soon. Uh, Austria was involved in this past weekend's Davis Cup World Group Playoffs, the last Davis Cup World Group Playoffs ever. And he was able to attend the the tie in Graz. So, Peter, I, I, I've been to one Davis Cup tie in my life, and that was in Argentina. And one Martin Del Potro was supposed to play, but he didn't play. So what I saw was a giant empty stadium with Philip Kohlschreiber playing. Um, not the not the best Davis Cup atmosphere, but I think it was a little better for you. Can you tell me what it was like at the at the Davis Cup tie this weekend? Yes, um, of course. And um, yeah, so the the tie was in Graz, as you've already mentioned. It's um, the second biggest city in Austria, so the obvious choice would have been to make it in Vienna. But in Vienna, in October, we have the the big 500 ATP tournament, so I think they they've chosen a different city for the tie um, and not wanted to do it in, in Vienna because they have this other big tennis event coming up anyway and the this Styria, this is this county where Graz is located, they have done um, some good Davis Cups in the past so they already know how to organize it and, and do it like this so yeah, and the, they built a, a stadium outside. It was a clay court, clay court event, and obviously because <laughs> Dominic Team said he w- will play, so the choice was that they will do it on on clay. And yeah, what 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 can I say? The atmosphere was really really great. There were probably more people than when you attended the Davis Cup <laughs> in Argentina, and the the stadium was uh, for six thousand people. And it was basically sold out. The weather was great, and there was no single drop of rain, and so there were really many people cheering for Austria. And there were even around, I think, thirty fans from Australia, which uh, who joined <laughs> the 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 crowd and um, yeah, and cheered for the for the Australian players. And I even talked to some of them because I was curious if they really. Um, have made the long journey of or if they were just randomly in Austria for this I- at this time and yeah it was they were really <laughs> making this long travel from Australia just to join their team and um yeah so the setup was perfect and um yeah and the draw was made on on Thursday the day before and uh, the first match was uh, Dominic Team versus Jordan Thompson, and I think you you want to know from me how that went. Yeah, but before I ask you that, I, yeah. you reminded me of something funny. That so these Australians actually did travel from Australia. They didn't just happen to to be in Graz or in in Austria. Uh, I was at the Winter Olympics in in South Korea this past February, and. Uh, at every event, especially the indoor events, I went to I think three of three ice hockey games. The the uh, the announcers like the people walking around with microphones during the the breaks between between periods and things like that w- would always seek out the the foreign uh, uh, the foreign crowd members who are pretty easy to pick out amid a crowd of Koreans and I think it's partly because the, these Olympics were a little bit less popular with foreign travelers but every person they picked out was an expat already living in Korea. So I was at the, I think, a Finland-Sweden or maybe Finland-Germany hockey game, and they, they found a, a Finnish couple there with their baby. And it's like, so what brings you to the Olympics? Like, oh, we live in Seoul. I work for a, a consulting company. 
Okay, so you've yeah. got some big hockey fans, but no, that that's great. I know the, the Australian fans are are very passionate. Um, anyone yeah. who'd fly to Austria for a from Australia for a World Group playoff tie would have to be pretty committed, I would think, just to for the jet lag alone. Yeah, definitely, definitely, it was like that. So you mentioned that you know we knew Dominic team was going to play, so it was. It, it, that was why the tie was decided to play on clay. Is that pretty much automatic? If team is playing, you, you play it on clay. Yeah, I mean that's what the media lets us, the, the fans know. It, it's more or less like this. Yeah, I mean everyone is hoping that team will play, and if he if he accepts to play, if he's if he, the scheduling is right, then then it will hundred um, percent surely be played on clay, and. Yeah, there's always this media buzz around if team is playing or if is he deciding not to play, and it's always also a bit of a yeah a, a struggle between his his coach Günter Presnik, which you of course probably know and and the listeners will also know, because Presnik is very pragmatic in his choices. So he's he actually. A few years ago, he was a Davis Cup captain. It's already, I think, 10 years ago or something like that. But I would say nowadays he's quite pragmatic about the Davis Cup. So he's not really emotional and he's not the the, the one who would say, yeah, Dominic has to represent his country and earn wins for his country. I think Jürgen Melzer maybe is more a player like this. But for Dominic team, he, he says he should only play if it's fine with his schedule. And often Davis Cup is, is is not working with the regular ATP schedule very well, especially for the top players, as we know and as you've discussed on this podcast extensively. But this time it was a bit different because it was for the for the World Group playoff, and also it, it wasn't perfect for the schedule because there were the U.S. Open and Hardcourt season already started, and then making the change to the slow clay court and. This week again, Dominic is playing <laughs> hardcore again in in Russia and Saint Petersburg, so definitely did not fit perfectly into the into the surface schedule, to put it like that. But yeah, he he decided to play, and uh, yeah, and then the choice was obviously clay. I mean, yeah. had team not played, I'm just thinking, trying to think the other way around. I think it might still have been on clay because the other players we have. Um, um, which are who are ranked below Dominic, for example, Jürgen Melzer and his brother Gerald Melzer and Dennis Novak basically are also clay quarters. So would still have been on clay, I would say. But yeah, for team, hundred percent. Yeah, even just to inconvenience Australia, because e even if all of the other players are neutral uh, between surfaces, then I, I can't think of a single Australian player who would want to play on a clay court. Yes, uh, I agree completely. Yeah, it was a um, no-brainer, actually. Probably. Speaking yeah. of speaking of Gunter Bresnik, you mentioned we we traded emails about this a little while ago, but um, I, you know I I didn't pay much attention to to coaches until I started really getting into tennis maybe three to five years ago, and and I over I heard on a U.S. Open broadcast I I didn't realize how long Bresnik had been coaching and. and Many of many of you listening probably just think I'm stupid for saying that because he's a very famous coach from Boris Becker and all that, a lot of other players, and I I, I didn't put this in the show notes, so I might have the number wrong, but I think the commentator said that Bresnik has coached is it 30 top 100 players? Uh, does that sound right, Peter? Yeah, that sounds about right. I yeah. I, I don't know the number by heart, uh, but, that but it's a lot. Doesn't sound crazy. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. really a lot. I was shocked by that. You think so much about players or about coaches rather sticking with at least some of their players for a long time. And, you know, if you're, I don't know, even if you're Darren Cahill or something, you're with Agassi for a long time, you're with Simona Halep now for several years, you can't get to 30 players. <laughs> I mean, you, you, there aren't enough years in a coaching career, but yeah. I suppose there's different sorts of coaching arrangements. I don't know. We talked about this on email too, that if, if you tried to tally up how many top 100 players Nick Boliteri has been a coach in some form or other too. I'm sure he, he has more than Bresnik does, but, um, but Bresnik certainly has to go down as one of the, one of the greatest coaches of all, all time in, in modern tennis history. Anyway, um, fun fact though, Dominic team has played more matches in his career than all of those other players combined, which is pretty impressive. 
<laughs> wow, okay, that's really a fun fact. Yeah, I might be stretching the truth a little bit, but the fact that he played the US Open, he played a Davis Cup tie on slow clay, and now he's playing, you, you just mentioned it, he's playing in Mets this week? St. Petersburg Saint, in Russia. St. Petersburg, yeah. okay. Um, yeah, that, that kind of says it all about Dominic's team scheduling. But back to, back to actual tennis i i think we talked about this the last time you were on the podcast i i had just written something about how dominic team was the he had the i think the biggest difference between clay and hardcore elos in favor of his clay court rating basically a, a complicated way of saying he's the the best clay court specialist we have in 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 terms of the difference he's not as good on clay as rafael nadal of course but mm. um there's a bit there's a bigger difference between his his clay court and his hardcore abilities um, we saw at the U.S. Open just a few weeks ago that he's pretty darn good on hard courts too. He really played well. But what do you think it is that makes him so good on clay now that you've seen him up close on that surface? Yeah. So what I think, the, the, the first first thing that makes him good on clay is definitely the, the slowness of clay. I mean, that's the, that's the obvious thing. I mean, the, the, the surface was really, really slow. Uh, even seeing it first person in, in one of in the tenth row it, it really seemed slow you could see how slow it was and i think they did that on on purpose i, I don't know how much you can influence that but somehow i think they, they tried to make it fit for dominic and also what what i've read is and again i don't know how much that really influences it but at least mentally <laughs> maybe it does because they they said that they use the same balls as at the french open so <laughs> that maybe is also good for for dominic as you might know because he reached the finals this year and um, yeah that i think these two reasons um, i mean i want to say i don't know how much that really influences the, the outcome but uh, that plays into his favor definitely and um, game wise i think he his game is just r really suits um, playing on, on clay court he can he ha just has enough time to prepare for his shots that's uh, he has long swings on the forehand and on the backhand and uh, on, on the backhand he has a one-handed backhand and he needs enough time to prepare for that obviously because you need more time to prepare for a one-hander than for a two-hander and that's also good on clay so I think this combination of these things um, are maybe the the biggest part on why he's so good on clay. And yeah, another thing that comes to mind is that he, he always has been a clay quarter. In every interview where they ask him, uh, what is your favorite surface? He says, of course, clay. And during all of his juniors, he only played or 99% played clay court tournaments. So that's just where he feels home. And yeah, but as you've also pointed out uh, a bit is that he seems to feel more and more safe and secure also on, on hard courts and that's something he didn't do in the past years but with his recent results and on at the US Open and the, the style of, of, of play he put on the court I think he has shown that he's able to adapt to hard court play and I've read an interview uh, during the Davis Cup from Dominic and he said that he <laughs> he always disliked it a bit when because everyone put it put him into the spot of he's he's the clay court uh, god behind Rafael Nadal obviously and that he doesn't really like it because he knows he can also play on other courts. Um, yes, and he also has won tournaments on grass even. So yes. Yeah, he, he, you're right. He his game doesn't need to limit him to, to clay by any means. One thing I've thought is interesting throughout this year, since you mentioned his one-handed backhand, and I think you're right in pointing out that it takes a little more time to prepare, which makes it maybe a, a shot that's better suited for, for clay. Strangely enough, unfortunately, this is just a podcast, but I can't talk about a one-handed backhand without doing a little bit of the motion with, <laughs> with my right arm. Um, maybe that's, some kind of mental limitation on my part, but I'm, I'm still doing it. I don't know what that means, but <laughs> um, that's my new gesture. If I give a, a, a talk at a conference or something, I'll, I'll just be waving my right arm around like I'm hitting really soft one-handed backhands. Uh, but I've noticed so that. You also yeah. have a one-hander? <laughs> I do, actually. Yeah, and, and for, for listeners who are, are not already aware of this, maybe you aren't, Peter, also. Um, 
I have my own Tennis Abstract page. If you go to Tennis Abstract and search for my name as if I were a player, um, you get some results. And it's mostly my results against Carl, my uh, and Edo. co-host. And Edo, that's right. So yeah, you, I know. <laughs> you've seen it. Um, yeah, I played played once against Edo. And, um, and we all have one-handed backhands. I think Edo does. I'm drawing a blank at the moment, but... But Carl definitely does. When I first entered him in the database, I mistakenly t put him down as a two-hander, and I don't think he talked to me for like three weeks after that. <laughs> so you got to be careful with this stuff. It's a key part of our identity. And I'm still doing it. I don't know what's wrong with me. Um, but I've noticed throughout the year that it, it seems like one-handed backhand guys are are really standing out on, on clay courts. We have team, obviously, but... Marco mm. Cecinato um, was a surprise semifinalist in at Roland Garros, knocking out Djokovic. Um, Shapovalov, not a good example, but Stefano Tsitsipas is a great example. He's more comfortable on clay courts and could mm. turn out to be another top 10 guy. Um, Vavrinka, like, I never would have thought of him as a clay court guy until he went and you know, won the French Open. But uh, but yeah, he's, he's very strong on clay. So I, I think it, it's easy to to pigeonhole one-handed backhands as a fast court. Um, I, I don't know a, a fast a, a fast court shot because of Federer and Stefan Edberg and some other notable mm -hmm. Becker, other notable players from the past. But but yeah, it, it it might turn out to be a better shot on clay, and maybe the the next generation that has a few more one-handed backhand. Um, players coming up then maybe that's what we'll see especially with team one question i didn't put on our, yep. our show notes so then coming out of the blue here for you peter carl and i last week were talking about uh, about what the rankings might look like a year from now and if we just assume federer nadal and djokovic are one two three i was asking carl who he thought would be number four and i gave him a few choices uh, i think it was it was delpo zverev and murray and mm -hmm. And Carl, I, I forget what he said now. Actually, it shows you how important these questions are. But but after he gave the answer from my choices, he he mentioned team as sort of a dark horse for the number four spot. Do you think that's... I'm going to try to ask a question that's probabilistically sound so you don't give me a hard time about it later. Um, what do you think the chances are that Dominic Team is, is, is the number four player behind those guys uh, at the end of next year, let's say? So you want a number? <laughs> yeah, yeah, give me a number, sure. If I say what, if, if I say, do do you think there's a chance? Then you're gonna say yes, um, definitely, which is true. So that I have to force you to. You forced me to force you to give a number. <laughs> okay, no, I would say I don't know. I would say fifteen percent, something like this. I mean, and who would you who would you say the favorite is to be the top guy out of the non-big three group? I think. Sasha Zverev, yes. Okay, Alexander Zverev. Yeah, it's it's. I I when I listened to the episode, I was also making up my mind and trying to think about it, and and I, I liked that that Carl mentioned Dominic, and I think he, he it would it's a close call, I think, and it heavily depends. Uh, the, you asked for last uh, the 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 rankings at the end of next year, right? Yep. Ah, okay, so that's a different story. I wanted to say it depends on the the hard court finish uh, this year. Obviously, that's all. Will also uh, that will not count for next year's rankings at the end. But anyway, I I, I still think Sasha Zverev has a better shot at at being number four. But it's um, yeah, it's an interesting question, and maybe as interesting is if <laughs> Rafa, Roger, and Novak will will be in the top three at the end of next year. But that's it on a different page. Yeah, that's a, a totally different conversation. And trust mm. me, we listeners, we have a lot of Davis Cup content to get through. So I don't want to get off track. Our, our outline has like 30 points on it. So <laughs> strap in and watch out. Um, on that note, I'm, I'm skipping our, our, our next point and jumping straight to Alex Dimonor, who listeners will know we've talked about a lot. Well, I and Carl have talked about a lot. Um, he's a fascinating young player, not that big of a guy. Um, He's the Leighton Hewitt protege of sorts, but really promising player. He had a good run at the U.S. Open, pushed Marin Cilic to five sets, got a good win against Francis Tiafo. Uh, you saw him play twice, Peter, once against Denis Novak and then once against Team. Um, he lost both of those matches. 
I guess, what, what are your impressions having seen Demon Orr in person? Yeah, um, I was really, really looking forward to see him live in person. And um, that's that was a great thing to being able to see him twice, because then you have this sort of comparison. You have a sample size of two at least and then you <laughs> you can you can see and try to compare his the different matches and obviously it also depends on the, on the guys who is playing with and maybe he, he changes his approach to the game so his first game his first match was against um, Dennis Novak and there was this upset which where, where Dennis who is a very very good friend actually the best friend of Dominic team <coughs> so um, where Novak pulled off that upset and yeah Alex he he has a actually it's a very enjoyable and watchable game on clay <coughs> I think he's he's actually he, he played many years in Spain if I got that right and that's why I somehow expected him to be good at clay even though he has currently in his his record at ATP level is on, on clay is only one to three, so he has one win and three losses, and that doesn't say too much, honestly. But yeah, he he seems to be more of a hardcore player. That's yeah, maybe also the reason why he's in late new it protege, and as we already said, in Australia they're m more focused on a hardcore, of 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 course. So. From the from the match itself, it, what I can say is really really good at defense. So when he played Dominic team, Dominic had to play something like three rally ending shots to make one point. So he 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 reached every every shot, every approach shot uh, from from Dominic, but he seemed not to have enough weapons to really hurt his opponents um, being it Novak or Dominic team and uh, so there were many long rallies and the game the matches looked somewhat close the rallies always looked somehow close but um, he somehow couldn't uh, end the rallies with with winners so yeah that's that's basically from what from what I can see and yeah let me let me think so what I, what I've I've said is yeah great defensive play but just not enough to to get through team especially and for for Dennis Novak he because let's give him also some credit um he he really played um, a great match so he somehow I, I thought he's really in the zone and he's somehow there if there is a home crowd effect at Davis Cup then he must have felt it because he every shot he was trying just worked so um, there was not much uh, Alex Dimenor could do to 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 win that match. Yeah, yeah, that that's interesting. I I watched. Did I watch one of his matches? Ah, I've watched a lot on on video. I forget whether I saw one in person in New York, but um, but yeah, I I, I agree. So fast, r really um, really versatile player. He can, as you say, he he keeps balls in play for for longer than you'd expect like i've seen him make make shots when the other players basically just assuming he got a winner on a drop shot or something so in on a slow clay court i can only imagine uh, how 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 much he would be able to keep points going um but you're right to to point out maybe he's just more comfortable on hard courts even though he did spend some time training in spain you mentioned earlier that you know dominic team will always be a clay quarter first just because that's what he's used to mm. and i think for for americans and australians that's that's just always going to be the default it's it's hard to really learn to to play naturally on clay if you're used to playing on hard courts um i re i watched a, a match from april i think just last week from the it, it was the final i believe of the alicante challenger um, so all hail live stream for and and sports radar whoever it is that's involved in in archiving all these challenger matches so we can do things like go back and watch a challenger final from five months ago but Demonor made the final and lost to Pablo Andujar who's not ranked as high but a really good really experienced clay quarter and I think the score was seven six six love in favor of Andujar maybe it was seven six six one or something um but it was exactly like the score makes it sound. Uh, Damon Orr pushed him really hard, looked like he was breaking through, 
I mean, it was a really hard-fought match for maybe 45 minutes to an hour, and then came back out in the second set, and it was like Anduar had totally figured him out, and it was over. It's like there, there was nothing more that Demonor could do to win points because he didn't have the clay court tactics, or I don't know, maybe he was injured a little, I don't know. But... Um, but it is something lacking from his game now. But I'll ask you, Peter, the same question that I asked Carl last week. Since Demonor is he's still a teenager, he, he's always going to be a little small by tennis standards. But you mentioned he didn't really have the ability to hit winners, to end points. Do you think that that's going to change if, if he can continue to grow and physically develop a little bit more? Mm, yeah, I think so. So, I mean, what he did really well is um, attacking the serves. I think you've already discussed this. So he hit. So when when team hit hit the second serves, he hit really uh, quite a few direct winners from his from returning his second serve. Even though team did not uh, serve any any bad second serves, so these were just normal, I would say, fast paced second serves, and he he approached them and hit winners and. Also, when he, I think when he lost the second set, I, I think Hewitt, uh, who was the captain for this tie for Australia, gave um, Diminor the the direction, the directive that he should uh, go more for winners. And actually, it it worked for the first few games. I think in the third set. So, I w- to answer your question, I would say he he already can do it. He he played. Uh, he had to take more risk, but he hit also more winners. But I think just on, on, on this day, on, on Sunday, it didn't work because it also increased his unforced errors rate significantly. And But if you just ask me if he can pull it off technical, technically-wise, yeah, I think he already can do it. And when you, when you add some more years and gaining strength and being more competitive with his, his body, let's say it like that, it like that then I think... He he will definitely be able to to change his game more in this direction. So that should be good news for him. Yeah, there's definitely yeah. some some room to grow there, both literally and figuratively. And I'll I'll ask you another question that that Carl and I talked about a couple of weeks ago. Um, so his Demonor's ranking now is inside the top forty, just barely. I think he's thirty nine or something, which is either a career high or very close. But he's still very young. Um, so having having seen him now and and listened to Carl and I talk about him incessantly for the last year, what is what is your forecast for Alex Demonor's career peak ranking? I would say, hmm, let's put him to eight. Eight. Do you yes. remember what Carl said? I don't remember what Carl said. He said I, something like that. Something lower, I think. Five or six, something like this. I will okay. look it up. <laughs> no, that that sounds about right. Um, I really should be keeping track of what people answer to my questions. Um, keep everybody honest, especially me. So okay, so back half of the top ten. That sounds that that sounds right to me. I wouldn't be surprised if he ends up a little bit higher, um, like like three or four. I think I I made the Ferrer comparison when we talked about him a couple weeks ago mm. um, yep. but yeah de- definitely a player to watch so I, I think I think it's safe to say this of the eight world group playoffs you were the lucky one I think you might have gotten the best of the eight yeah I think so too I, I just uh, skimmed through the other ties which were played uh, definitely better than Switzerland Sweden <laughs> yeah yeah no question about that one that was there were a couple that were quite weak uh lots of drama i think if you had to pick one for drama then maybe the the hungary czech republic tie sounded pretty good with the the first two rubbers there's some pretty amazing singles matches there with um and Piroš. yes um, and the but, doubles was also a comeback from being down uh, love to two in sets and they won it yeah, and this is this is a a bit of a premature segue for what we're what, what we are really prepared to talk about, which is the new Davis Cup formats when we'll have no best of five matches at all. Um, so I just want to hit a, a couple quick points before we get into that. Um, ah, we don't need to talk about Leighton Hewitt. People have been talking about Leighton Hewitt for twenty years. We can take a break. 
Um, it, it is it is sort of obligatory to mention that it wasn't just the eight world group playoffs. Um, people like me have a tendency to focus on the the challenger level level players whenever possible, but there was actual world group semifinal action happening and France knocked out Spain pretty easily. Nadal wasn't able to play. So France looked really strong. Even Benoit Paire looked good uh, beating Bautista Agu. There was a lot more drama in the Croatia USA tie that ended up going Croatia, but that went down to the fifth set of the fifth rubber uh, with Borna Choric beating Francis Tiafo. Uh, so, I mean, some, some really interesting tennis. I think Marin Cilic had a pretty massive choke against Sam Querrey in a match that he really should have won. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've got the, the last the last old-fashioned Davis Cup finals will be a tie between France and Croatia. And it, it obviously it always depends on, on who shows up. I'm assuming Cilic and Choric will be there for Croatia. Um, France, there's always a lot of question marks. Um so maybe it'll be Puy and maybe Pear again, or maybe Gasquet or somebody will be healthy and willing to play. I don't know. Um, but but Peter, what do you think in this final? Who do you think the favorites are? Um, I, I would put uh, France as a favorite, but not by big margins. I mean, as you said, um, it's both can 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 win it definitely, and for France is always unsure who will play, but they have such 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 a dense field of good players they can choose from and that's maybe also makes it hard for for the croatians to to prepare or maybe they just don't try to think about who will play from france and just focus on their own squad but yeah um i would i would i would put france ahead and maybe just by a small margin because you can never know what happens um, it's also interesting if I mean the Julien Benetton played in doubles rubber. I think I've read somewhere that Yannick Noir, the captain from France, asked him just I don't know a few days before the tie if he wants to play, and he said yes. And also just following the the the, the my Twitter timeline, this uh, the 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 main commentary was that uh, Benetton was the best player on the court. So. It would also will also be interesting to see if he will play in the final. I don't know. Yeah, and that that also ends up depending on everyone's health because he wasn't planning on playing. I think it was um, Pierre Herbert who w- would have normally been the guy teaming <laughs> with Mahu, but he wasn't available. If if Herbert and Mahu are available, then you know Benito is a great story, but you got to put uh air bear on the court i think according yep. to my doubles elo ranking uh, ratings air bear is the number five doubles player in the world maybe number four actually um so yeah he's you got to put him out there but mm-hmm. but we'll see um i guess what france would really want is the labor cup format where you have six singles players on both sides because <laughs> I, I france might have six guys in the top 100 i'm not sure but um they could they could put out a really good lineup and i think croatia's team would not look so good after the first two. France. So has how many players in the top hundred? What did you say? Oh, I don't. I, I don't know. I was. Going I just to looked s- it up. They have ten players in the top hundred. Ten. Yes. Wow. Even Herbert is in the top hundred in the singles. <laughs> oh yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's insane. I, I wouldn't have thought it. So yeah. yeah. Just it's makes your point even stronger. Yeah, so they would go for the Super Labor Cup, just play play down to number twenty in the <laughs> the, the country rankings or something. Um, yeah, that's that's impressive. Um, who, yeah, I knew they had a, a deep roster. Yeah, definitely. And who who do you think will uh, win the final, or do you do you have any guesses? I think it has to be France. I think when you have when you have good singles players on both teams you kind of have to lean the direction of who you think will win the doubles rubber mm. and France had, I mean, I, I, like you say, anything could happen. Um, but yeah, you have to give the edge to France and because they have a former number one doubles team, still a very, very high ranked and rated doubles team and good enough singles players. I think they can, they can pull out two of the singles rubbers. Um, hopefully Marin Cilic will play better than he did this past weekend. Um, he can't be proud of losing to Sam Query, but yeah, I think 
you have to have to give a nod to France. And it will uh, be played in France, as far as I know. So yeah. Okay. Yeah, sounds good. I always forget that that's a big deal. I I think it's overrated as a factor, but I mm. believe it is a factor. I know I've researched it, but I can't remember if I found anything clear or if I even published whatever I found. Mm. Uh, but it's not a huge effect either way. It just, but it definitely feels like one. Um, it might be. I think part of the problem is that. The, the the team with the home court gets to choose surface so you end up having to tease out the surface effect and the home advantage effect yeah and how would you do that <laughs> yeah it's it, it's tricky especially when like you point out with the with the surface that austria chose it wasn't just clay it was super slow clay yeah and yeah maybe we we know that for surfaces now because the I think the ITF checks them and confirms they're within an acceptable range of, of court speeds, but I don't know if that information is public. I don't know. Even if you, even if you knew all that, it, you have so little data on how the, the surfaces play for each individual tie. Like if yeah. you couldn't get that out of the information from five matches. So, okay. Now for the, 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 the big part of episode 33 is, explaining how the heck the new davis cup works if you're listening to this you are probably hearing a, a good explanation for the first time because we have yet to find one um peter's been working really really hard for a guest host which is not how it's supposed to work um <laughs> i've been <laughs> i've been giving him a lot of jobs to figure out uh, what on what on earth is happening because the itf has not been particularly clear about how davis cup is working they're just starting to announce some things but um but this has all been rather sudden I and mean, when when we did this when when peter was last on the show about five months ago we were talking about the proposal it was just a couple months ago that not even two months ago one one and a half months ago that the proposal was approved and now boom it's davis cup is over basically we're, we're looking at something new in in 2019 and What that means, among many other things, is that this world group playoff round that we were all riveted to this weekend and some of us were at in person, it didn't really matter that much. So, so Peter, I'll let, you, I'll let you get started with this. Austria on Australia, usually if they're playing a world group playoff round, one of them, like Austria in this case, wins. They enter in the 16-team world group next year. But the loser, Australia, goes back to group one and they have to play a couple rounds to get a chance to be in the playoffs again next year. So they're out for a year. But that's not the case this year. So let's start there. What what happens next for teams like Austria and Australia? So, okay, let's let's try it. <laughs> so it, <laughs> it, in the first week of February, there is a qualifications tournament and The, the, the ITF needs 24 teams to compete there. So there will be 12 um, Davis Cup rubbers, um, 24 teams playing against each other. And from what we or I found out, um, the winners from the World Cup playoffs, um, they win and what they get is a seat for this qualification tournament in February. And the losers for example um, australia um, they still participate in this tournament given that their davis cup ranking which was released uh, just a few minutes ago a few hours ago and um, given that their ranking is good enough which is i think the case um, as far as i've looked for all of the world group playoff losers so the eight world, gr uh, world group playoff losers will also be able to participate in this qualification tournament and alongside with the four quarterfinal losers from the world group and with 12 teams coming from the group one uh, of the davis cup from the different zones uh, which are europe africa asia and america so yeah then we have the 24 spots for the qualification tournament where 12 teams who win their ties will be allowed to participate in the real um, Davis Cup finals. Okay, uh, I'll stop you there. Yeah, exactly. Sure. That's, 
that's the clearest exposition of that that I've heard so far. So we have these 24 teams that will play in February. Um, and ultimately, they're all playing for a spot in the PK Cup, I guess, the, the, the new Davis Cup, which is happening next November. And that thing has 18 teams in it. We'll talk about what they do when they get there in a, in a minute or two. But um, those 18 teams, four of the teams are this year's semifinals. They go straight in. They don't have to play qualifying. So Croatia, USA, France, and Spain, they're in next year. And then, as you point out, we've got these these 12 um these 12 qualifying rounds i guess it's it's possible maybe even likely statistically that we could have countries that played each other in the world group playoffs just now play each other again yes that's possible definitely (laughs) which that that sound that's sort of like a an an additional insult to teams that just won um like congratulations you now get to beat them again and you have to go to their country now or something like that um so those, that's that's 12 teams, which brings us to a total of 16. But then there's two wild cards, uh, which to me is the, the most bizarre and, and slightly cynical part of this whole scheme. The two wild cards, officially, they have to be in the top 50 of the rankings or have a top 10 singles player. And apparently they're going to announce next year's wild cards bef- in a week from now, on September 26th, um, when they're doing the draw for the qualifying. Actually, I, I, sorry, I have to interrupt. Yeah. <laughs> I've just read that the wildcards will um, be announced later, so not before the draw of the qualification. And there, Yes, and there is this rule, <laughs> if one of the teams uh, who, which are in the qualifications draw will get the wildcards, then the next highest ranked nation will enter the qualification. Wow, yeah. is there any indication of when these wild cards will be announced then? Um, let me just... Um, n- no, I don't think that there's a date <laughs> set. Okay. Well, the, nope. the, the, cynical, the cynical part of me is just assumes that the wild cards are there so that the Davis Cup organizers can guarantee that if Federer wants to play... Switzerland gets in, or w- maybe in five years it'll be Zverev or somebody else. But um, that makes me think that they would want to announce the wild cards as late as possible. But I guess they have to announce them at the very latest before before February, but probably a lot earlier than that because these are the the qualification rounds in February are sort of like current Davis Cup ties. They're happening in a host country. Um, so yeah, uh, maybe yeah. I, I I maybe I have to correct myself. I think they still okay. say that they the the two nations that will receive wild cards will be announced prior to the draw. So I thought they meant the world the the final draw, but I think they mean the qualification draw. But then in the next sentence they say if a nation that is due to take part in the qualifying round is awarded the wild card, then the spot will be taken by the next highest ranked nation. Oh, okay. Yeah. So what I was That's thinking is that at the time of the draw, they should already know who is getting the wild card, so they can already prepare for the situation that the next highest ranked nation will get their spot. But anyway, um, yeah, it will be interesting. Uh, yeah, and <laughs> just to know who will get this wild card and if this process will be transparent. Yeah, I I I, I kind of suspect it will not be transparent, <laughs> just based on what we know about tennis so far. Uh, and the, this whole process, but and, and it, it's got to be Switzerland. Come on, if if there's any sense that that Federer might play, it's I don't know. It has to be, yeah. or maybe maybe it's Switzerland and Serbia or something to get Djokovic in there. Um, I noticed that the David, the British Davis Cup captain, um, whose name is escaping me at the moment, he's already. Uh, campaigning or suggesting that that britain should get one of the wild cards but i think they they have a decent chance of qualifying i guess any of these any of these teams have a decent chance of qualifying if their good players show up which is the issue with federer or djokovic there they would have to actually play in february and just to be clear i think since since peter and i have been researching this and and sifting through all of the the ambiguities for the last few days i might be skipping over some 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 basic things 
that nobody is really that sure about. These February qualifying ties are sort of like traditional Davis Cup. These are all happening. These are home away ties. So if it's Austria, Australia, again, it's happening in either Austria or Australia, just like the World Group Playoffs or any other standard Davis Cup tie. The difference is it's not best of five anymore, right? So they are still five matches, aren't they, though? Not three. They're three. I don't. I, I'm afraid I have again wrong information. But as far as I know, there will be only three matches. Okay, I thought it was five. So this was supposed to be your and, your definitive Davis Cup transition explainer episode, and, and we really don't know very much. Because I'm, um, I'm pretty sure. Because what they said is that it will be played on first and second February, which is strange enough already oh. because it's only Friday and Saturday. It's not Saturday and Sunday. So okay. it will be played on, on, on Friday and Saturday, and that somehow implies that there will be only three rubbers. I still think it might be five, because I think group okay. one ties are still are only in two days now this year. Okay. And they're five matches. So the, the way that the group one ties were happening this weekend was Friday was the first two singles matches, and then Saturday was doubles and the reverse singles. Okay, that makes uh, sense. So we, I think we need another episode explaining all of this. <laughs> yeah, that, that probably would fill up an entire hour just explaining everything we leave out from this one. Um, but yeah, that, and since they're best of three, it's more it, it's more realistic to schedule three matches in one day, both for yep. the players and for fans and just the, the number of hours in a day and stuff like that. Um so Definitely these qualifying, not. the qualifying rounds give us, or the qualifying ties rather, give us 12 teams. We have the four previous year semifinalists. We have two wild cards, which are sure to be um, financially driven and and controversial. So we have 18 teams. And Peter, jump in at any point if I say something wrong, which probably means you'll have to pay super close attention <laughs> and jump in at about eight seconds. But the 18 teams will be split into six groups of three each of the six groups will play a round robin so so every country plays two t- two ties um and this is all at one one site in the course of about a week and each of these ties is two singles and one doubles so every one of the six round robin groups has a winner um and then there are two I don't know, do we call them wild cards or qualifiers or whatever? Two more teams are chosen based on how many sets they win in the in the round robin groups. So then you get eight teams. Those are are the quarterfinalists. And then you just play single elimination until the end. And this is all happening in the course of one week. Is that right? Yes, the round robin is from Monday to Thursday. Quarterfinals on Friday, semis on Saturday and final on Sunday. That sounds exhausting. <laughs> yes. I mean, it, it, I think the round robin alone is is 54 matches. You end up with every team plays... 18 plays times two. three, yes. Yeah. So 54 matches in four days. And then you have 12 more matches on Friday in the quarterfinals. Um Wow, I mean that's that's like I don't know the. I guess it, I'm gonna say something wrong because I'm forgetting about ATP doubles, but that's like all the singles matches in in a Masters event, mm-hmm. uh, and I don't just the logistics of it seem a little difficult, like because there aren't very many places with a lot of of crowd capacity on that many courts, depending on how they're managing all this. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a, a, a non-technical question then. Like, with all this tennis happening, is this supposed to be our year-end festival of Davis Cup tennis? Do you think this is going to be fun to watch or fun to follow? Mm, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm, I, I somehow doubt that it will be followed by, by a big crowd. And um, as we've also put on the show notes, uh, that it's also somehow competing with Labor Cup. And I somehow lean towards David uh, Labor Cup that it's more that it draws more of a crowd. But I'm 
I'm happy to to be convinced that more people will pay attention to Davis Cup, and I think that's also the idea from from the organizers. But I just don't like the the scheduling in in week 47. To be honest, I I don't know what what's your take on this. Well, it, it, the, you make a good point. Um, just by implication, by saying week 47, that even if we didn't know what time of the year this was, or we didn't know how long the tennis schedule was, this sounds like a lot of tennis. And I mean, 54, 54, well, 54 matches is just the, the round robin. So 54, 12, another 21 quarterfinals and beyond. So 70, um, I, I can't do mental math and podcast at the same time, apparently. So 77 matches, maybe something like 75. I don't know. I, I can't add... That's why I write Python code because Python does the addition for me. <laughs> so 70 plus matches, um, yes. that's a lot. And the, the, team, the, the teams that are in the final round are playing their fifth tie by then in seven days, maybe six if they don't start until Tuesday. So it, if you have, I don't know, let, let's, say, let's say Switzerland is in and Federer and Wawrinka show up. So... That, that's five matches for Federer, five matches, singles matches for Vavrinka. Maybe they're tempted to play doubles, so they're playing more than one match a day. I mean, it's it's not too much to ask technically, but for players who are playing something that's verging on an exhibition in week 47, after they've just played a long season, I mean, everybody's tired. The good players are even more tired because they just came from the World Tour Finals where they played matches that counted. And... It just it sounds like a, it sounds exhausting just to watch. Yes, uh, <laughs> it's exhausting just to figure out what the rules are. We've been doing it all week. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think um, as you say, it's a big commitment. Also, let's say um, Roger Federer um, will will play and they will get the wild card. So he already has to commit right now, more or less, to play at the end of the season because I think they have, will have a good shot at qualifying and then he will play the finals and i'm not sure how how this can work and even i'm trying to imagine what the crowds will look like uh, so i think from the typical typical cr countries like spain and france and, and and germany probably they will draw big crowds but from the more from the less popular teams i think they won't draw so many crowds to the stadium and uh, i'm trying to to think of how it will look like because from from the past uh, weekend i've seen the crowds in the, from the from the semifinal ties and it's just looked so great and the atmosphere and even in the tie I attended Australia versus Austria, it was amazing and I have a hard time somehow thinking that it will be the same. I'm not sure. Yeah, it, it, it one thing that that has stuck out to me. I I just read a really interesting column um, by Steve Tigner who's I mean pretty reliably worth reading at tennis.com. Um, he, he brought home to me that one of the great things about Davis Cup is it, it kind of slows down and let you focus on on whatever match is happening right now. Um, so there's the doubles rubber day. is It's, it's just that one doubles rubber. I mean, it, it, the next day could just be a decisive fourth rubber or then a decisive fifth rubber. And it... It, it, it really puts a lot of focus on players who don't often get that focus. Usually, I mean, Zombor Piros is playing challenger qualifying or something. But even Sam Querrey, outside of the U.S., Sam Querrey is going to be on an outside court until he loses in the round of 16. So all of a sudden, Americans get to really watch Sam Querrey in a way that they normally wouldn't. I'm not sure if that's a good thing, but that's the first <laughs> example that came to mind. Um, and this, this new format... like you barely have time to know who's playing when. I mean, I guess it depends how media covers it. I guess in the U.S., Tennis Channel will always give you ties with the with the U.S. In Australia, you'll always be able to watch teams match and, yeah. and so on. But if I'm watching Eurosport from Norway, then it, it sounds more chaotic than a Grand Slam. Whereas <laughs> during a traditional Davis Cup weekend, like they would pick one or two interesting ties and I could... You know, I could watch France versus Spain unfold. And maybe that's just a generational thing because I'm getting old, or maybe it's just sort of a, a, you know, depending on what sort of, what, 
what sort of thing you're into. If you're a traditional tennis fan, you like that. But if you're the the next million fans that mm. the ITF wants to chase after, then eh, maybe they maybe they like having a lot going at the same time. I don't know. It, it yeah. does seem to be a pretty big change, though. Yeah, definitely. I mean, shorter matches and shorter attention spans, maybe that somehow correlates to them and that's what they want to get from the crowd. Yeah. So, no so more five-setters. Yeah, definitely no more five-setters. That's uh, And this past weekend has really pointed out how much of a shame that could be, seeing just one last shot at all the Davis Cup five-set drama. Um. Yeah, one one last thing that I want to talk about since we're we're approaching the the one hour mark is Davis Cup has always been thought of as one of the few places where doubles really get the spotlight um, because there is this one day that's just the doubles rubber. Uh, it always counts because you can't you can't win a, a, a tie by with three matches in, until the doubles rubber is played, even if you're particularly likely or particularly unlikely to win on the following day in the reverse singles. But right now, doubles really matters. With the new format at the finals, where we have two singles matches and one doubles match, and I believe the doubles match is always going to be third, uh, the last match of of the tie, uh, we could have more ties that are are decided by doubles if the two singles matches are, are split. But on the other hand, we could have a lot of dead rubbers where the doubles doesn't matter do you have any sense peter of what the what the balance will be like is this is this a good thing for doubles fans is this going to give us more reason to watch doubles than before or less i think it gives less reasons so as you pointed out what what i've loved about the old format is that that the doubles has this central space it's played in between the two other singles and the, in between the four singles, actually, and I think now it's it's taken away something from this. So I think we will have more dead rubbers in the in the doubles because, uh, as you already said, also that um, some ties will already be decided at that point. And on the other hand, mathematically, the the doubles is more important because it's one out of three matches and not one out of five. Um, and I'm not sure you uh, are you certain that the two singles are played first and then the doubles, right? Yeah, I'll say ninety-five percent certain. Okay, <laughs> okay, that's good. Uh, and yeah, I, I would love to see the doubles played between the two singles, but uh, if that that seems not to be the case, so yeah, um, I think it's it's not not good for the doubles. Yeah, that could be something that that are, is what players want, since so many singles players are also going to play in the doubles. That's that's how tour events go. If you're mm-hmm. playing a singles match and a doubles match in the same day, I get this came up a year or so ago. On there was a big Twitter debate over it, but it's not technically the rule that doubles matches have to happen last, but they always do. Uh, yeah. So so yeah, I guess that makes sense. Doesn't take as much as much energy and and so on, but. Um, but yeah, I think I think you're right. I I am curious to see how it will play out at the finals with with teams trying to qualify as second place in their round robin groups. Because if you if you are counting sets one, then ev- every every match matters, even if you're already eliminated from an, a specific tie. Like you still want to win a set or win the doubles match because that increases your odds of being the second place team. But so there are no dead rubbers actually, right? Because yeah. each match counts to the tally of sets one, or is, is that right? Yeah, that that's correct. Yeah, mm-hmm. it, I think you do end up with some dead rubbers because if you are the third, the third best team out of three in the sure. group, then eventually you're mathematically eliminated. But yeah, yeah. there's um, th- th- there's a bigger chance. I think that this whole thing is so complicated and so different, and there's so many variables about participation and motivation and all that that I don't have a good intuition about how it's all going to play out and what's going to matter and what's not. Um, I'll, I'll leave you with one thought since we are running out of time, but uh, that Steve Tigner column I mentioned a few minutes ago, uh, definitely worth a read. And he made the point that 
What makes Davis Cup so great, if you have to boil it down to one thing, the existing format is that players buy into it. I mean, you see the passion on court. You see Julian Beneteau and Mike Bryan coming in as as great players who are essentially last-minute substitutes. You see these super dramatic matches that the players really, really, really want to win, and they leave it all out there. And that's what fans want to watch. I mean, they want to see players who are 100% invested in in what they're doing. You get that at slams. You get that at some other tournaments. You definitely get that at Davis cup. And that's ultimately the question. Will they be that invested in, in the new finals format? If they are, the, the fans will, um, I mean, I think what Steve said is right. If they are, the fans will follow. If they're not, then, then we'll see. But I think that's a, a, a good note to end on. Um, Peter, yeah. thank you very much for, all of your uh, all of your uh, effort you put into this to helping us figure out how this works you're welcome uh, and and for your report on the the tie in Graz. um so thank you for joining me hopefully we'll do it again soon and listeners everyone thank you for listening um we'll be back in in some permutation of hosts or other next week most likely so enjoy the labor cup this coming weekend and mets in st petersburg and all the asian women's tennis and I will see you next week.